Welcome to A Dark Turn, part of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. I'm your host, Kevin Deutsch. Here on the show, our goal is to take you deep inside the world of criminals and criminality and to illuminate the darker parts of American society, especially those where violence and psychopathy collide with the American ideal. Today's guest is the author Cutter Wood, whose new book, Love and Death in the Sunshine State, The Story of a Crime, chronicles the author's investigation of a woman's disappearance on Florida's Gulf Coast. The story begins with when a stolen car is recovered on the Gulf Coast of Florida, which sets off a search for the missing woman, a, loca- a local motel owner named Sabine Musel Bueller. Three men are named as persons of interest in the disappearance, Sabine's husband, her boyfriend, and the man who stole the car. After that, the motel is set on fire, at which point her boyfriend flees the country and detectives begin digging on the beach of Anna Maria Island on the Gulf Coast for Sabine's body. Cutter was a guest at uh, Sabine's motel as the search for her gained momentum, and he was drawn steadily deeper into the case. Driven by his own need to understand how a relationship could spin to pieces in such a fatal fashion, he began to talk with many of the people living on Anna Maria, and then with the detectives, and finally with the man presumed to be the murderer. But there was only so much that interviews and transcripts could reveal. Uh, and that's really where the book gets interesting, is, is when Cutter starts exploring the unknowns of the case. Uh, Cutter was born in central Pennsylvania and received his BA from Brown University and an NF- MFA in creative nonfiction from the University of Iowa. He's received an NEA fellowship and has had essays published in Harper's and other magazines. He was also a visiting scholar at the University of Iowa and the University of Louisville. He currently lives in Brooklyn with his wife and daughter. I spoke with Cutter at the Miami Book Fair recently, a wonderful event um, that I encourage you to go to next year. Um, It's probably the the best best book fair and, and uh, literary event in the United States. And Cutter was gracious, gracious enough to spend some time with us and speak really candidly about his experience reporting the book, the impact it had on him, and, and, and sort of um, what it's like to, to spend years uh, reporting a book like this um, and how it affects you and, the, and, and, and uh, th- those around you. Uh, so without further ado, here is my interview with Cutter Wood recorded last week at the Miami Book Fair. Cutter Wood, thanks so much for joining us today on A Dark Turn to discuss your book, Love and Death in the Sunshine State. It's a really fascinating book. Uh, I found I found it highly inventive in terms of what you do with the narrative of blending what what could have been a just sort of a straight true crime story that you were yourself were involved in, and then all, in the second half of the book, um, adding a sort sort of a, a real creative spin on creative nonfiction. And, and sort of a, adding some, some hypotheticals about what could, what might have been, what might have happened. And, and, and it was really an inventive way to do it. But before we talk about that, just share our readers who might not know about your book. I'll tell them a little bit about, about the story and how you got drawn into it. Sure, sure. Well, thanks for having me, first of all. The, um, so the basics of the story on election night 2008, which now seems so long ago, uh, this woman named Sabina Musel Bueller disappeared. And about three days later, they found somebody, a man named Robert Corona, just driving her car around. And what unspooled was this very kind of strange case where they had these three men. She had a husband, she also had a boyfriend, and this man who was driving the car, who were all kind of regarded as persons of interest in the case. And then 
two weeks after that, somebody set fire to this motel that she owned. And what caught my attention really was the fact that uh, I had just been a guest at that motel. And so I got this, I saw this newspaper clipping that had this motel in flames. And I thought this seems so strange. I started talking to people down on this island in Anna Maria, kind of this little small, very touristy island off the Gulf Coast near Tampa. And I was just immediately struck by the impact that her disappearance was having on their thinking. Like people were hallucinating seeing this woman everywhere. You know, they saw her at the gas station, uh, they saw her at the dentist's office. I remember my, the favorite, my favorite person I talked to was a woman who was sure that Sabina was going to get in contact from the afterlife, but she was going to do it through her pet parrot. And she was gonna like, let me know when this parrot started talking as Sabina, and then she would help me figure out what had happened to her. Uh, so when I first got into the project, I really thought it was gonna be this kind of very short, tidy essay about the way that people kind of project all of their hopes and desires and fears into this place where a woman had been. And then only as I, as I kind of fell deeper into it did I realize it was actually a much, much bigger story and a much darker story uh, about this love affair that had gone really terribly wrong uh, and very dramatically so. You, you develop a uh, sort of a journalist source relationship with uh, the man who is eventually uh, the, the man who committed the crime. Mm-hmm. And you visit him as he's incarcerated and he's, he's proclaiming his innocence. And um, you get drawn into the investigation, too, because you sort of, he, you, this man seems to begin to trust you. And uh, tell us a little bit about your relationship with him and how that developed over the course of your, your, your reporting and, and investigating the book. Yeah, fraught, I think, would be <laughs> the best word to describe it. Uh, so, yeah, he, he was, he violated his parole in the month or so after Sabina disappeared. And that, uh, for that, he got 13 years in prison, um, which was kind of extraordinary. You know, that's not a normal thing that happens when you violate your parole. He just left the county. Um, and it was kind of obviously a, uh, something that the prosecutors did because they wanted to keep him around because they thought he was a suspect in this disappearance. And so he was, he was in prison this whole time. And I would visit him. I visited him up at the Chipley Detention Center up in near Tallahassee, and um, at a at Charlotte Correctional, Correctional Institute as well. And they were just very, very strange interviews every time we talked. And then also back in, in Manatee County, I visited him and, and talked with him. Uh, he is a very uh, intense human being, and when he is incarcerated he's heavily medicated often so our conversations were so dictated by kind of what meds he was on so i remember the very first time we spoke you know i had seen these pictures of him in the paper after after his girlfriend disappeared and uh he was just this very you know kind of like a hunky kind of handsome guy when i get to prison he's like totally ashen his head has been shaved He's very, like, almost shrunken and, and frumpy. And the drugs he's on, he just cannot, like, keep a thought in his head. And you can kind of see why, as we're talking about this case and, and uh, this woman, he just would get more and more intense about her, and, and he would grab onto the side of a table, and, like, his eyes would start to bug out of his head. And then suddenly, he would just forget what he was talking about. It's like, oh, this is what these drugs are doing. They're just interrupting his thought cycle. And so... Yeah, the, 
the process of, of getting to know him and, and getting involved in this thing was very strange. And, and that doesn't even get into the letters that we exchanged for years and years and that we're still exchanging. I still get letters from him fairly often. Which brings me to my next question. Uh, it, nicely, it, is, is how has this affected your life? I mean, you, you, you were... Um, uh, you were kind of, uh, it seems at the beginning of the book, you're sort of searching, you know, you're, you're sort of, uh, you don't know where you are in your life at the beginning of the book. You're, you're a little bit looking for, for what to do and, and something to, you know, to ground you and, 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 and something meaningful. And at the same time that you're looking for that, and as a personal story, this story comes along. So just, and you also, it's also a deeply personal book about a relationship you had and a, and a, a love affair, and it all ties in very nicely with the with the the much darker story of, of the crime um but, but tell us a little bit about, about how this story affected you personally and you mentioned the letters that you, you, you the correspondence tell us a little bit just how you are now <laughs> <laughs> how i am now yeah you know uh that's a that's a, a big question how am i today <laughs> no it, so i was really i guess the best way to put it is just i was i was really blindsided by this story you know, as I said, I, I kind of got into it thinking it was going to be this smaller project. And <clears throat> the the kind of grisly nature of it just kept unspooling little by little over a course of years. And, you know, it's not just the interviews, it's also because I'm, I'm talking to detectives and they're, they began sharing, like, information with me that they hadn't shared publicly. You know, so I'm starting to put together all these little pieces of evidence. Um, you know, and I'm doing records requests, so... Uh, you know, one day I'll just open my mail and there'll be a bunch of, like, all the evidence photos from her apartment after she disappeared, you know, and luminol, and so you can see all these little pieces of blood and things. Um, and, yeah, it was really, it was actually very, uh, just difficult to, to work on this kind of thing for what ended up being, uh, basically six years straight. Uh, you know, you're just not used to sitting down every day and trying to think, the way uh, a murderer would and trying to recreate that perspective and then on the other side you know like what you touched on uh, at the same time like I'm in a very similar place as as uh, he was when the story took place and I've, I've just moved in with with who was then my girlfriend now thankfully my wife um, and that's just stressful and it's weird and it's strange to be writing a murder about this kind of similar situation that you're in and it, and it was it definitely made me reflect a lot on you know I think every relationship is you're not always pleasant to the person even if you love them deeply every time I would sense like any little bit of unpleasantness in our relationship I would think like flashback to this case oh my god how is this related uh, so it made me I hope a lot more considerate <laughs> I, and I think, uh, you know, I, I think uh, the way that you handle these various subjects in the book, I think you handle it beautifully. Um, and I wanted to ask you as a, as a writer, and we do have a lot of writers who listen to the show, too, so we like to talk about craft a little bit. Um, this is a book that, you know, it really spoke to me because I thought I mentioned how inventive I think it is, how you overlaid the personal story upon the true crime story and sort of blend them. There are a couple books that I've read like this recently, but yours, I think, stands out the most. And then there's also... Uh, I guess the, 
I don't know if you would call the genre like true crime memoir. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. James Renner wrote a, this book, True Crime Addict, which uh, is also he sort of talks about his life overlaid upon the disappearance of Maura Murray. And so there's a couple of books coming out now that this seems to be a, a sort of more writers are doing this. And, and I think your sort of, your book was at the forefront of that. You're one of the first ones I've seen to do that in a, in a really effective way. What as a writer, how did you make that choice? Uh, was it from the beginning that you always knew you would tell your story too, or, or, or did you start out just wanting to tell the, the pure true crime tale? Yeah, I mean, actually, from the beginning, I wanted to keep myself out of this as much as possible, uh, and I tried to write the book a bunch of ways that way, uh, and it just didn't feel right. <clears throat> I can't explain it any better than that. It just didn't feel right. Uh, and finally, what what began to make sense to me was that if I did that, I wasn't putting myself on the line in the same way that I was putting, you know, I'm, I'm putting these people in the story kind of on trial in a way. Uh, and I felt like if I was going to subject them to that kind of scrutiny, I had to subject myself to it as well. That would be the only way to do it fairly and it would be the only way to do it convincingly. Uh, so that's really what, what determined it. And then, I mean, from a practical point of view, from a craft point of view, if you can narrate the events from your perspective, that also kind of helps, helps give them a chronology and helps, you know, give it a structure. And, and, and it, it really works effectively. And in the second half of the book, um, um, you, 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 re, you do something which is even more inventive, I think, where you sort of take on the what if. Here, here, here are the parts of the story that we don't know, but here's what it might have looked like. And, and you, you sort of take, and tell us a little bit about how, what, what tell, tell our readers a little bit about that because I'm not explaining it great. Yeah, yeah. But, but and, and how you came to decide to do that. Yeah, so the crazy thing about this book, this is maybe the craziest part of what was a very long, crazy process for me. I think on, I think I'm remembering the date correctly, I think it was October 15th, 2015, I finished it. And I sent it off to my agent uh, and hopped on the internet to see what was going on with the case, as I just always did then. And like within 15 minutes, the case had been resolved, she'd been found. uh, And up to that point, you know, I'd been writing this thing as like an open-ended story I just assumed that she would never be found you never really know what happened and so after that happened I by that point in time I knew I knew the guy who is who it turned out had had murdered her and I went down and we sat together for a week straight in the Manatee County Jail and we knew each other well enough that he just narrated for me basically like a minute by minute of their final night together and their entire relationship from seeing her for the first time to you know rolling her up and and burying her uh and that was really what kind of allowed me to and also made me feel like i had to write the second half of this book much more closely around their perspectives and and kind of filling in with these details i mean it's not in quotes but that entire second half of the book is just full of of kind of verbatim stuff that he told me you know there's <clears throat> I remember, for instance, one of the chapters when he has just, just killed her. Uh, he's trying, he was telling me this about what it was like, this moment, you know, and I just remember he, like, uh, clapped his hands, and he said, you know, it was just like, she was relieved of a burden, uh, and, like, that just stuck in my head so much, and so that's, that's, like, in the book, that you have that moment where he has just murdered her and like he's narrating his thoughts afterwards. Um, 
so a lot of it is is like straight out of his mouth which <laughs> is scary to me still he's a really powerful uh, figure in the book and um, he it, what is, when you interact with somebody like that and I've done a little bit I've interviewed a number of, of convicted murderers and for, for stories and books over the years and I know, so I, I, I don't, but I don't know, I can only speak for me, I'm interested how that affects you, like you mentioned earlier, getting inside the mind of someone who killed someone, getting inside the mind of a murderer, how, uh, so what is that like for you, taking that home with you, psychologically, is that, and, and, and you know, um, one thing we also talk about on the show is, is we like to talk about mental health issues because mm-hmm. it's, I think it's important, especially for writers and journalists. People don't always talk about it. But how, what, what, what is that? How, how was that for you dealing with it? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's something that calls out for a glass of whiskey, definitely, after doing one of those interviews, right? Um, God, I don't know. I mean, the, the interviewing process itself is just very, very strange. And I think a lot of people have written some amazing stuff about it. You know, Janet Malcolm talks a lot about how uh, a journalist, and I think specifically kind of like somebody who's writing about crime, is like a glad-hander. You know, they're, they're portraying the people they're talking to. But I think it's actually a lot more complex than that. Uh, I definitely always had this feeling, and I think it's because I, I grew up in a restaurant, like so I have this very strong waiting tables background. And my interviewing persona is so, I find it painful, so obsequious. I think because of that, you know, I'm always trying to make sure that that person's happy. Um, I don't know if that's effective at all, but it, it's weird then because you begin to feel uh, complicit in a way. You know, you're like encouraging, encouraging the story to come out, which is not like a, a good story. It's not really pleasing to anybody. Um, and so it was, it was very stressful and strange. I mean, I certainly was not prepared for for what really became like a week-long confession slash therapy session with this person, you know, where he's still working through all this stuff. It's the first time he's publicly admitted to anyone what he's done. Uh, so trying to come to terms with it, of, of what that means for him and who he is. Uh, you know, I think there are times when you're both like uh, weirdly like broken up about it. It was, it was very strange. It's that, and I think that's what makes it so it's such a powerful story. It's, it's eerie, and uh, the story's eerie, and it's moving, and it's just there, there, it, there's this strangeness that pervades the entire experience, uh, your your experience and the reader's experience. As a reader, that's what I felt. That I was compelled to keep going, and I was like, wow, this is so weird and haunting, <laughs> but also yeah. really fascinating and beautiful in many ways. Um, so. Um, Tell us a little bit about your your you know one thing that 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 I liked about it is this the the town as it Anna Maria uh, Anna Maria, Anna Maria sort of becomes a character in the book. What was it like for you, sort of just you know because at times it's it's at times it seems like you you, you love it it's beautiful and at times you kind of hate it because you you know probably because you're investi- investigating a very dark thing. What was your relationship like to this place, which almost becomes a character itself in the book? Oh, it made me sick. Yeah, it, it literally made me sick. <laughs> I could not I could not fly into Tampa without like feeling queasy and then like renting a car and driving it's like an hour and a half drive from there out to the island I, it just filled me with dread every time uh, and it still does to a degree actually I've been there a few times since uh, it you know it's this town is it's very beautiful it's like this little tiny very thin key they talk about like having sugar sand beaches you know it, it's like 
one of the most popular tourist beaches around. Um, and it's also very weird because it's such a vacation spot. All these places are rentals, which means that there's only maybe, I think, I can't remember the statistic, but I think there's only like 40% permanent occupancy on the island, which means that during certain like down months of the year, it's just a ghost town. So it's very, very eerie to be there sometimes. And then also, I mean, just to have in my mind that knowing that there was a body somewhere there, you know, and to go down there and the detectives are out on the beach with a backhoe and they're just digging holes at random in the sand hoping to, to strike bone. It was really uh, sickening, yeah. And, and this last question, I don't mm-hmm. want to keep you too long. Um, you were actually at the spot where they eventually found her body, right? You went out to that beach and you sort of knowing that she was somewhere out there. There's mm-hmm. a very haunting scene of you just being out there. And they eventually found her right there, right? In this, mm-hmm. in this mound of sand, right? Is that sort of what happened? Uh, I mean, they actually found her in what, what her murderer called what he said was the least unexpected place, which was uh, he buried her in the floor of a pavilion. That's right. Um, yeah, right, right. Where, where like they would go and sit and have a drink at sunset every night, which was just phenomenally, in my view, kind of a phenomenally dumb thing to do, because eventually they're going to like pour new foundations for that pavilion and find her. Uh, but it, it worked for a time for him. It it was really weird being out on that beach, uh, and there was a moment I really, I like, kind of lost it one night and went out there and started digging like I really I just like was walking on the beach I was like she could just be right here I should just just see if I can just find her and so I just started digging went back to my room which is very close to the beach afterwards and then just had these horrific nightmares about this sandy woman coming to try and get me it was it was intense uh I'll tell you here I think is one of the most fascinating things kind of like in terms of the story kind of coming to get you the weirdest part of this whole whole bit was that the University of Iowa police, I was living in Iowa at the time, uh, they were contacted by the Manatee County detectives to try and reach out to me before we'd made contact, and they thought that I was a suspect in the case, and they like, brought me in and grilled me, thinking that I was like a homicide suspect, and that was just, that was so terrifying and so strange, and that was the moment where I was like, oh my god, like, I couldn't stop working on this book if I wanted to, this, this book, this story has like intentions on me now. That was that was the sign. <laughs> it's such a remarkable story. Uh, Cutterwood, thanks for joining us to talk about love and death in the Sunshine State. We're live at the Miami Book Fair. Um, I, I encourage everybody out there, if any of this interests you, and I, it probably did because it's fascinating. I mean, there's so many... We've only touched, uh, we, we won't, we, you know, this is just the tip of the iceberg, some of the stuff we've talked about in this interview. The book is just filled with haunting, uh, beautiful stuff and, and dark stuff. And, and I encourage uh, our listeners who like true crime to check this one out. It's a unique story and one you won't want to miss. Cutter, thanks for, thanks for joining us today. Oh, thanks for having me.